0: This morning comes from Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. It's Genesis chapter 6 and verse 10. It's good to be here this morning. Have you been blessed this morning? Amen. Amen. I think perhaps my favorite hymn in that hymn book is And Can It Be? The great astonishing truth. Can it truly be that the Lord Christ would die for me and you? And now we come to hear from His Word. May He speak to us. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 10. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth. And behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. And God said to Noah, Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood upon the, a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, He did all that the Lord comm- God, all that God commanded him. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, it's good to be here this morning, as we've already testified to, gather together and to consider that which you have done for us, and be able to respond to you through our praise and prayers. And now we come to a time which many of us hold so dear in our corporate worship—a time in which. We don't speak to you of our thanksgiving and praise, but you speak to us of your truth. We believe by faith this morning that we have your truth in our laps in front of us. We believe this to be the very words of God. We believe you reveal yourself to us, that we may become more like Jesus, that we may love you more and follow you more and be more faithful in that which you call us to do. And so it's been my prayer, Father, and I trust it's the prayer of your people this morning, that what we do this morning, this next 45 minutes or so, would not simply be an exercise that happens once a week, but that truly you would come and speak into our hearts through your word and the Spirit. It's my prayer, Father, that someone here would be changed forever, whether they would bend their knee finally to the Lord Jesus, or perhaps you would work in someone's life a great work of obedience and trust and love. And so please, Father, will you come and minister to us? Will you encourage the downcast? Will you humble the proud? Will you glorify yourself? For we pray in Christ's name, amen. At the end of the 19th century, the Swedish chemist Alfred Noble awoke one morning surprised to find out that he had died a day earlier. At least according to the local newspaper he had, for in it he read... His own obituary. It wrote Alfred Noble, inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in war than ever before, and he died a very rich man. That was the end of the obituary. And of course, he wasn't dead. It was his actual brother who had died the day before, but But this simple obituary in this local newspaper had a profound impact on Alfred Nobel. He decided that he wanted to be known for something other than developing a means by which we can kill each other effectively and amassing a great sum of money in in the process. So he took his wealth and initiated what we now know as the Nobel Peace Prize. Awards that are given to scientists and leaders and writers who foster peace in this world. In initiating the Peace Prize, Alfred Noble uh, explained why he was doing this when he said every man ought to have a chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. When we come to Genesis 6 this morning, and I very much feel like we are seeing just that. As we gaze upon the life of Noah. This man, if you will, who wrote his own epitaph for us here in Scripture. And we're going to explore this man's relationship with God, explore his trust in God, even during God's response to sin. I don't know if you've picked this up, but as we've been working our way through Genesis, you notice really since Genesis chapter 3, it's been one sin after another, and God comes again and again and responds to man's rebellion against him. And so here we are once again seeing God come and respond to sin. The question is, how how will he do it? Will he bring justice? And we like justice, don't we? Wrongs righted, vindication, restoration, truth winning, deception exposed, justice is good, we like it, but we also like mercy, we also like grace, mercy is good, sinners forgiven, punishment absolved, debt counseled, so, so what should God do? Should he press charges? Or should he let the wicked off? Should he give justice? Or should he give mercy? And in exploring God's response to sin, I really think we get at who is this God whom we worship? What is he like? In fact, he would tell Moses what he was like there after he found Israel worshiping this golden calf. And he Moses went up into the mountain and God revealed himself to Moses saying that, I am the God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Isn't that fascinating? We explored this a little bit on Wednesday night. How is it that God says, I will forgive sin... And at the same time, I will not leave the guilty unpunished. How, how do you have both justice and mercy? Well, of course, we now know you do so through the cross. And it's there that we see justice and mercy united where Christ intercepts the justice of God and gives us mercy. But here, way back in Genesis 6, and even before that in some texts we've already considered, we see, we see glimpses of what He will do in the cross. We see that God will respond to sin with both mercy and justice as we understand here in this text before us. And just to catch us up... We've been, of course, working our way through Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, we saw that this world is not the product of time and chance and the random outcome of billions of years, but rather is the personal creation of a powerful God who made a world full of blessing and wonder and awe. He made people, put them on this earth, they are his image bearers, his likeness, and he gave them authority to rule over the earth as, as kings in his place. In Genesis chapter 2, we saw that God created our parents, Adam and Eve. He blessed them abundantly, especially with a relationship with him. And yet in Genesis chapter 3, we saw that our parents, rather than loving God and following him, decided to love themselves and join this satanic rebellion against the creator. They said, we will not follow you. We will not love you. We will not bend our knee to you. We will become God's ourselves. We will decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, the path in which we should take. God would come to them, and he would come and respond to that sin with judgment. But before he did, you note that God in Genesis 3.15 says, I give you this promise that one day, The seed of the woman shall come and he shall destroy this serpent. And everything in which you have lost because of sin shall be restored to you. And from Genesis 3.15, the rest of Scripture kind of springs out of. The rest of Scripture is how do we go from Eve to this serpent slayer? How do we go from this first Adam to this second Adam? And it's just all the way through Scripture is bringing us there. And God promises that he will redeem Well, in Genesis chapter 4, we see that sin is growing, it is maturing, it is abounding. In Genesis 5, we see the impact of that sin after generation after generation. People die and die and die. And now we come to Genesis chapter 6. And God has been observing mankind for thousands of years. And He sees, as we saw last week, sin. Sin and sin and sin. Genesis 6-5, as we considered last week, God says... That every inclination of the thoughts of the heart is only evil all the time. And so he decides to act. He responds to that sin. He will do so by judging it. We'll explore this more fully next week. It will be perhaps the most terrible judgment we have in Scripture. But he not only judges sin, he extends mercy. We considered this somewhat last week, but today as we look at the mercy of God in response to man's sin, what's unique that we see in the text before us is how is it that you and I are able to access that mercy? How how is it that, that we can be saved from God's judgment? How can we receive the rescue in which God would offer us? And so we'll work through this text. We'll do so in three stages. Number one, we will see that judgment is warned. Number two, that salvation is offered. And number three, that faith is given. First of all, consider with me that judgment is warned. We see the cause for judgment here in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. And God said to Noah, "I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so here we have a, a picture of the world. I don 't know if you caught it here in verse 11, verse 12, but this idea of corruption is mentioned three times: that the world is in total ruin, it 's become useless, it 's become defiled. It's become a corrupt place to live, and and not just the world, but you notice. I think it is in verse twelve. Here it is: for all flesh had corrupted their ways, and so you see, they're not victims here, are they? They are bringing this upon themselves. They're not forced to be evil. The Bible tells us they have corrupted themselves, and we've seen this here. In Genesis: that Adam and Eve corrupted themselves, and Cain corrupted themselves himself, and now we see the world is corrupting themselves through their sin. I think we continue. This this pattern, I don't know if you recognize this, but your sin brings corruption on you. It brings destruction on you. We, we routinely, if you will, kill ourselves in our sin. And in fact, this word corrupt that's mentioned three times here is sometimes translated destruction. And what he's saying is that, that they are destroying themselves and destroying the world. Now think about what they're supposed to be doing. God made this world and he says, okay, I've given you dominion over it. I've given you authority over it. I want you to fill this world with my glory and my splendor as my likeness, as my image bearers. Go and rule over this world as if I were ruling over this world. And rather than ruling the world in which God had made and given to them, they chose to destroy it. They chose to corrupt it. The Bible tells us here how they did so. They did it it seems primarily through violence. You notice that in verse 11, the earth was filled with violence. And again, verse 13, we see the earth was filled with violence through them. It was a world full of murder and strife, mayhem. The Bible is universal in its description. It says the earth was filled with this and all of them filled the earth and all flesh had corrupted their ways. This impacted everyone's life. No one escaped from it. The last thing I find interesting about these handful of verses is that God sees it all. You notice that in verse 11? Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Did you note that? And then verse 12, and God saw the earth. You see, God was looking, wasn't he? Thousands of years had passed. Sin had abound and matured and spread all over this earth. And perhaps they thought, he doesn't care. He doesn't care what we do. He's not even noticing. Maybe he's not even out there. I tell you this morning that God does care and that God was looking and nothing escaped his sight. Day after day, he gazed upon the corruption of this world. I think that's an important word for us this morning. Because I look around this world and it doesn't seem vastly different than the world that I see here in Genesis chapter 6. I see a world that is increasingly corrupting itself. That we increasingly applaud sin and approve of sin. And it even seems in our day, the day you and I live in America, we are making righteousness illegal. It's a criminal offense to be righteous. I have a good friend who works in social services down in Richmond. And he signs adoption papers for children to be adopted into foster care out of foster care into a family he told me the time is coming soon when she will be forced to sign adoption to same sex couples and if he refuses he will lose his job he called me stephen what should i do you see this is the world in which we live in and that that pursuing righteousness causes you to lose your job or perhaps we look outside our own country and we see the churches being burned in Egypt or children being gassed in Syria and we wonder God do you even notice do you even notice can you see what's going on and friends I tell you based on my own intuition but based upon the authority of the very word of God he notices he sees he takes note and he will act He will judge. But before he does, I want you to notice, before he judges, he reveals that he will judge. Look in verse 13. It says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. You see what God is doing is he's telling Noah beforehand his plan of judgment. This is God's pattern all the time throughout scripture. We see this. Man sins and God will come and judge sin, but before, there's a gap in between sin and judgment and there's there's always this warning. And we read like the prophets, and certainly there's very vivid details of the coming judgment of God. Or even read the words of Christ, and he talks about the coming judgment of God. But what God always does is he he tells us that judgment is coming before he initiates it in order to give us an opportunity to repent from that which brings his wrath upon us. I think of Jonah who walked into Nineveh who said in 40 days God will strike down this city, offering them all a chance to turn from their evil ways and to trust in Christ. You see, before he judges, he warns of judgment as an act of grace itself. The promise, of course, here in verse 13 is very graphic. He tells Noah that he will kill all flesh. And not only that, he will destroy them with the world. I mentioned that this, this word corrupt is the same word as destroy. In fact, it's used it's the exact same word in Hebrew here in verse 13 when he says, Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. I will corrupt them. I will just destroy them. They, they're destroying the earth. They've already self-destroyed it. And I'm just going to come and I'm going to finish the job. He tells us how he plans to do it. Note verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set a door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower second and third decks. Why? Why am I making this big boat? It's verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood upon uh, of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven everything that is on the earth shall die everything will die he'll do it by flood you see what god i think is doing is he's uncreating the world remember back in genesis chapter one we read in the first verses that the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the deep and the spirit hovered over the waters before God began to form and to fill this earth, we had this picture of just this this world covered with darkness and water, and and then God began to to make land appear and, and animals appear, etc. He began to form it and fill it, and what we see here in Genesis six is that God, in some sense, seems you know I'm just going to undo everything I made. I'm going to I'm going to destroy it, that which I created. I'm going to uncreate. I'm going to fill it back up again with water. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 6, refers to the world of that time, as if the world before the flood was vastly different than the one in which we live in. I wonder what type of empires we lost, what type of cultures and arts and inventions were all washed away by God's wrath, his judgment. See, God will judge sin. He sees it, and he will judge it. But praise be the Lord, and to our eternal gain, that is not all that God does when he sees sin. You see, not only will God judge sin, but before He judges sin, He offers salvation. And so secondly, consider that salvation is offered for, we see in verse 18, but, you get that? I'm going to kill everything in this world. But, there's hope. But, salvation is offered For he says, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark. This is the first place we see this word covenant found in Scripture. It will be a theme running through the book of Genesis. In fact, it's a theme running throughout the Bible. It's an idea that when God enters into a relationship with people, he enters into a covenant with them. That is, he makes a commitment to them. He makes certain pledges and vows and devotion to people that he's in a relationship with. If you're a Christian here, you are in a covenantal relationship with God. In fact, if you're not a Christian, you are still in a covenantal relationship with God, as we'll see in Genesis chapter 9. But you do realize, Christians, that you are in a, what's called the new covenant. That God has made certain promises to you. He has made vows to you to love you and to save you and to bless you and to redeem you all according to his covenant. And God has, has showed us that when we enter in these important relationships, we enter into covenants. This is why we do so in marriage, for instance. God has shown us how to enter into formal and important relationships that we just don't cohabitate and, and, and take it day by day. But rather we make vows to one another, promises and pledges that I shall treat you this way and you shall treat me that way. We make a covenant. This is what we do when we join the church. We make a covenant with one another. We say, I will walk alongside of you and I shall be a member of this church and I shall make these vows to you and you make these vows to me and we enter into a relationship together. One of the great joys in my life was being able to join that, uh, with, a, with a church to covenant together with God's people saying, we are God's people here at Hamilton Baptist Church. There's a great joy in that. I will put a plug this, this morning as we think about this covenants that God has shown us that, that we are going to begin to explore church membership at the end of this month. You notice that in your bulletin. I invite you, if you're interested in what does it mean to enter into a covenant with God's people as joining a church that you consider perhaps coming to our luncheon the last Sunday of this month, that God enters a, a covenant with Noah. He pledges himself with Noah. But interesting, look, it's just not with Noah. Look at this. Read read on in verse 18. It says, you, and then who else? Your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. You see, God enters a covenant with, not just with Noah, but with Noah's family. Did did Noah's relationship with God bless his children? Absolutely. It blessed his wife. It blessed his family. You see, Noah's a, a patriarch. A patriarch is someone that God grabs and says, you're mine. Do you want, do you want grace? They say, yes, I, I want, I want grace. And God saves them and He redeems them and He fixes them and He gives them a new direction in their life. And then what they do is they begin to influence those underneath them you see God sets them on a new course giving them new ambitions and dreams and longings and then he puts a family right underneath them and say okay I'm just not fixing you I want the blessings that I pour upon you to be poured upon those whom I put under you put you in relationship with that's that's what it means to be a patriarch I think the problem with the American church today is we don't have enough patriarchs we need more men, I believe, who will say, "Listen, not only is my life going to be changed, but I am going to change the life of my children." Now, now listen, Noah's children had to believe in order to get on that ark. I don't think Noah tied them up and threw them aboard. Right? They had to walk freely, but I'm telling you that their daddy made it a lot more a lot easier for them to bend their knee to Jesus, to follow after Christ. My children will need to all believe on their own. They will all individually need to bow their knee to King Jesus. But, but God help me if I don't make it easier for them. Because I'm their daddy. And their daddy walks with Jesus. This is what Noah's doing. He, God, God is blessing Noah's family through Noah. And just think about what Noah's building a, he's building an ocean liner in the backyard. I mean, it's a cruise ship in the desert, and and his kids are out there helping him. I trust they, too, for these 120 years, helped their dad build the boat. And he's a little weird and eccentric, I trust. But they they know their dad. My dad walks with God. Listen, your kids are going to watch your life a lot more than they listen to your lectures. Your grandkids as well, the people that God puts in your life. I mean, you can lecture them all they want, but they want to know what do you do with your free time? How do you spend your money? Is the Bible ever opened in your lap? You ever grab your wife and walk off into another room and pray together for your family? They want to see, does God actually make a difference in you? Are you walking with God? Because they're smart, and they're going to read our lives a lot more clearly than they will our lectures. And some of you have been richly blessed because you've been raised in a Christian home, and you have a daddy and a mom who made it easy for you to believe, for you to trust Jesus. Your goal then is to to continue that on to the next generation and the next generation. And not only your kids, but whoever God brings into your life that you can influence. For others of us, we weren't raised in a Christian home. And one day, God, with His great grace, when we weren't even looking for Him, grabbed us and said, would you like grace? And we said, yes, sir, I would like grace, please. And you know what? God says, okay, I'm going to fix you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to set you on a new course in life. Not just to bless you, but I wanted you to bless your family you 're going to have a new gener- a new direction, a new ambition, new longings, and your family shall follow after you. You should be a a blessing to them that 's what God did to me he He one day when i wasn 't even looking for him, grabbed me and turned me around and said to me do you want to leave a legacy behind you do you want to leave a lineage behind you do you want to leave a nation behind you that loves me i said yes god i do see i'm a patriarch i believe that with every fiber of my body i, I believe very much not by my own skill but solely by the grace of god that the karn family restarted with me we got a reboot we were all living for the world, living for wealth, living for acclaim. No consideration for God whatsoever. And God, by His grace, says, Stephen, do you want to follow me? Do you, want to, do you want me to redeem you? Do you want me to give you grace? Do you want me to give you new ambitions and longings and desires and drives? And He saved me. But He didn't just save me for me. we got to get this idea that it's all about me. It's my personal relationship with the Lord. Certainly it is personal, but it has massive impacts. Upon those who God brings into our lives. I, 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 friends, I, I dream of the day, and perhaps my theology is wrong, you correct me afterwards. But I dream of the day when I'm looking down in heaven, and they're talking about great, great, great granddaddy Stephen. <laughs> and some, some great, great grandson of mine grabs his son and puts him on his lap, and you say, let me tell you a story about this family. There was a day in which we were, we were godless. We could care less about Jesus. We were wicked, and the most wicked one of them all was your great-great-granddaddy, Stephen. And yet God grabbed him, and he put him on a new direction. And God has been blessing us ever since that time. He's been pouring that out. I want want to leave a legacy. And so I may fail as a pastor. I don't know. I, I may fail professionally, but God help me if I fail as a husband and if I fail as a father. I praise God for the grace that covers us when we do fail. But friends, I'm going to live my life as a patriarch, that my children will be blessed and my grandchildren will be blessed because God has done a work in my life. I pray perhaps that God could grab some of your life. Some of you don't even have children, yet God would grab your life and you begin to see, I can impact generations for Christ, as did Noah. Noah's family was largely, I think, incredibly blessed because Noah walked with God. And we see this great covenant, the salvation that extends down into his children's life. But interestingly, it doesn't just end with his children. For we see here in verse 19, And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And so God says, Listen, I'm making a covenant with these animals, your family and these animals. And what God is, is hinting at, before Noah even knows it, is that yes, I'm going to uncreate this world, but there's going to be another start. And you and Noah will be the next Adam. And you will walk off that ark with all of creation at your backside, coming off that boat with you. And we're going to start over. What this tells us is that God is not defeated by sin. You see, man rebels and God just doesn't say, okay, well, I I just can't figure this out. I can't deal with this. I don't know how to get around this. Every time I intervene, it just gets worse. And so I'm done. I'm just flooding the earth and I'm done. No more humanity. No more creation. We're just done. We'll go do something else. That's what God says. God has a plan that God will fulfill His plan. He has promised a serpent slayer to come, a redeemer to come, and He shall fulfill that plan. He is always moving in that direction. And He says, listen, we will start over. I'm not going to let sin win. We shall have redemption. There shall be salvation. There shall be my worship upon the face of this earth. And so he says all these animals will come in. There will be a fresh start. And so here it is, Noah, his sons, his son's wives, Mrs. Noah, and all the animals of the world there. God is going to save. And I wonder, and maybe you wonder, what about the others? What about everyone else? And, and I, don't, I don't have much to say. I don't know. But I do know that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The Bible says he's a preacher of righteousness. And we also know that once all the animals are in the ark, it was probably about half full. There was so much room. And I trust that salvation was offered. I trust that Noah said, judgment is coming. Grab a two-by-four. Let's get to work. Come aboard the ark. It's coming. But no one came. No one came. Just Noah and his family. The reason that Noah and his family were saved, as we consider lastly, is that their faith was given to God. They trusted in God. Look at verse 22. Noah did this. He did... You see that next word? He did all that God commanded him. He did it all. And so what was it that God commanded him? Well, look back in verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. All right, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Okay, so so far so good. Make yourself a boat. Here's where it gets a little crazy though. Verse 15. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. He goes on and says, make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second and third decks. And so God says, I'm going to flood the world and you're going to make a boat. But he says, it's going to be big. It's a it's a it's a big boat and you're going to build it in your backyard. And I got to think no has had a conversation with God. Of course, Scripture doesn't tell us. So I'm clearly I'm speculating. But if I'm there, I would say you've got to be kidding me. Right. I mean, this is a joke. And God says, I don't joke. This is no joke. Build a boat. Build it 450 feet long, 45 feet high, 75 feet wide. It will hold 1.5 million cubic feet or about 522 railroad cars. That's a big boat, especially for a desert, right, in your backyard, um, so this is a, a crazy task. And so Noah, I think, is, you know, you, you have the list of people you want to talk to when you, when you die and get to heaven. Like Noah's up there. He's like my top three. Because I, I, I just want to know what it was like when he went home and told his wife what he was going to do. Um, I just think that would be pretty pretty amusing conversation. That he goes home and tells Mrs. Noah, listen, I'm going to build a boat. And it's 450 feet long and 75 feet wide and uh, 45 feet high. So that's a big home improvement project. Uh, he's going to need some new tools. He's going to need a bigger truck probably. And um, he goes home and tells, and she must have thought, "You got to. What are you What are you talking about? You're going to build a You're going to build a the carnival cruise line in our backyard." And he says, "Yeah, that's right." Well, why are you going to do that? Well, God God said in 120 years He's going to flood the earth, and uh, we're going to go on board the boat, and every Every animal on this earth is, is coming on with us. Two of every kind is going to come. We're going to go for a boat, right? And, um, and so I think that would be funny. I, I, see, I, I, would, I would have left out the details. I would have just gone home and said, honey, I'm going to build a boat. Um, and not told her the size or 120 years or universal flood or all the animals. But here's Noah, and he builds his boat, and he did all that the Lord commanded him. And, and how long did it take him to build it? It took him 120 years, we know, from verse 3 that we considered last time. He and his boys just building, building this battleship in their backyard. You know, it wasn't until 1857 that we built a boat, that humanity built a boat bigger than this boat. And so um, it, was, it was massive. It was unheard of. And every day for 120 years, he got up and kissed his wife and taught his kids and swung a hammer and preached on the Sabbath. And that was Noah's life. Um, and this world's diving further into sin and more violence and more corruption. And Noah gets up and every day he just grabs his tool belt and he says, boys, it's time to go to work. And they go outside and, and they build this boat. And, and year after year, they persevere and they work and they work for over 100 years. I think God sometimes gives us a job and, and we do it for a half an hour and we start patting ourselves on the back. We start thinking, man, I'm spent. That was hard. And here's Noah for 120 years just laboring Swinging his hammer. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that he built it in holy fear. I'm not quite sure what that means, to be honest, but I'm sure there was some terror in Noah's heart. There was fear knowing what was coming. I don't know if he saw a cloud floating by and said, we're not done yet. Um, You know, it was a deadline or something. Okay, Hold off, I got some more levels to build. There's this fear that Noah had. There's this perseverance that he had, this meeting a deadline, this no days off, no sleeping in every day, just going out doing all that God commanded him to do. I trust his neighbors considered him to be a freak. I mean, I, I, we, we think of him as, as a holy man, but I think his neighbors probably thought him as a crazy man. And they laughed at him. I mean, we're even laughing at him right now. It's, it's crazy to think what he did. This, this, this task, this boat in the middle of a desert, massive, and people I trust were walking by and mocking him. And Noah said, listen, guys, in 85 years, it's going to flood. You better, you better grab a hammer. Let's get to work. And they mocked him and laughed at him. You see, Noah simply was just a fool with a hammer. He just took a hammer and he went to work and he did what God commanded him to do. And he did it just with him and his boys. You know, sometimes obeying God is solitary work. Don't you think? Sometimes the world's doing everything else. And God says, okay, listen, I I want you to obey me. And you say, God, but no one's doing that. That's okay. This is what I want you to do. I I want you to, to obey me. I wonder if we ever put limits on what we'll do for God. We'll, we'll say, well, listen, God, I'll serve you, but I I don't want to do that. And I'll, I'll sacrifice, but that's a little too far. And I'll go, but you know, I don't want to go there. Manoah just says, okay, whatever it is, I'll do it. No, I just want to walk with you and if that's where you're going I want to be with you. Noah walked with God. Uh, verse 9 tells us he says God I just want to hold your hand and, and I'll follow you and you lead me and we'll go wherever you you lead and I'll do whatever you command me to do. You see the world's the civilization didn't pull on him. It didn't have an appeal to him. He found a greater joy and a, attraction in God himself and sometimes friends we open the Bible and we have to read it and the Bible says listen God, God says I want you to live this way. You know what? I want you to be a virgin until you're married. And we say, well, wait a second, no one else in this world's doing that. God says, I don't care. Sometimes obeying is solitary work. Listen, I want you to, to give financially to the church and missions. And you say, well, God, listen, n- no one else is doing that. I-, I want you to go, I want you to love those who hate you. And you say, God, no one else is doing that. Well, the reality is sometimes obedience happens all by yourself. And God really doesn't care if you're alone. He wants to know, will you obey him? You see, Noah did all that God commanded him. He trusted God and says, I will do what you want me to do, what you call me to do. Now, the question I have is why? Why did Noah do this? Right? I mean, this is an insane task that God gives him. Why would he build this boat? And the only outcome we have is that he trusted God. He believed God. He believed what God had promised. And we know this from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. The Bible says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in holy fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. It is by faith that Noah built this ark. You see, we see his obedience, but we know his obedience to God is evidence of his faith in God. And so you and I ought to know this, is that you want to know, do I truly believe God? Well, you will see it in how you obey God. The man who truly trusts God will do what God asks him to do. That is the proof of our faith. It is the obedience in which God calls us to do. James chapter 2 and verse 17 says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. It does nothing for you. I mean, if Noah said, I believe, but I have no obedience. He's being washed away with every other person. It's the faith that leads to obedience. That is the saving faith. A faith that actually works. In preparing for the sermon, I came across a story I found interesting of a burning building in Harlem, and there was a blind girl who was perched on the fourth floor. Uh, The firemen had become desperate because they couldn't fit the ladder truck in between the buildings, and so they got the net out and put it under the window, and they called for her to jump, but she she would not jump, and she couldn't see the net, of course, because uh, she was blind. But finally, uh, her father arrived, and he shouted through a bullhorn, Honey, there's there's a net below, and you need to jump. And so I'm going to count to three, and then I'm going to say jump, and I want you to jump. He said one, two, three. And the girl leaped off that fourth-story window, not knowing what was beneath her. And the amazing thing is that the story says she was so completely relaxed that she did not break a bone or even strain a muscle in a four-story fall. Why? Well, she trusted her father. She trusted her her father, and that trust is seen in her obedience. You see, Scripture tells us we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't get to see reality. We just trust God. When there's no evidence, that's That's living by faith. We still believe because God says it. You know, Noah doesn't get to experience the flood and then build a boat. Oh, I see. There's a flood. I know what that's like. Okay. Now I'll obey. No, God says a flood's coming. Obey now before you actually experience the reason for it. The Bible, in fact, says in Hebrews 11 that he uh, was warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. He didn't know about floods. He didn't even understand them. Some think that there hadn't even been rain upon the earth. Earth at this time all that was in the future and noah had no signs to verify that this would happen and yet he did it because he trusted god he had faith in god james says what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works can that faith save him well it certainly would not have saved our brother noah he had faith See, if you want to access the mercy of God in the midst of his judgment, you do so by faith. It has always been by faith. It has never been by works. God's mercy is always and only available to us if we trust him, bowing our knee to him, calling him our Lord. And that faith leads to obedience. So the question I have for you is, is there some act of obedience in which God is calling you to do that you're not willing to do? Has God, God laid something on you that you need to turn from this sin that you've been playing with for 5, 10, 20 years? He just won't obey. Or, or has He called you to, to go somewhere or love someone that you really don't want to love or forgive someone that you don't want to forgive or take some financial risk that you're really not sure that you ought to take or reach out to people that you find uncomfortable? or Has He, has he asked you to do something? You see, a faith works itself out in obedience. I think sometimes God asks us to do things that seem impossible for us. He does that so that we will walk by faith, that we will trust in Him. So many times we live as practical atheists. We say, yes, I believe God. We gather together and worship Him on Sunday, but whenever there's something that's just beyond us, we say, how am I going to do it? Well, that's the point. You can't do it, but God can do it. We walk by faith. Noah obeyed because he gave God his faith. I really like this guy. I'm really fond of Noah. I just simply think he, he was a fool with a hammer. He just trusted God, walked with God, and swung a hammer. And I, I like him because I don't think he's exceptionally talented man. I don't think he's exceptionally gifted. You know the Bible says God gives some people ten talents and some five and some one. I think Noah got one talent. He's a one-talent guy. And that's important for me to see because I could relate to that. Maybe maybe some of you can as well. And we look at all the heroes in Bible, and they're all these great, talented men. You think about Abraham and his wealth, or David and his courage, or Joshua, who's this great general, or Solomon and his wisdom, or Paul and his intellect. You know what did Noah have? He had a hammer. That's what Noah had. He had a saw. And God used him mightily. He, he used him mightily. There was a time in my life... Um, when I was a bit younger and I, I dreamed about the size of church I would one day pastor and the books that I would write and where I would travel in the world to preach to thousands of people. You know, I dreamed about this great, incredible ministry. You know, all that seems like a headache to me now. Uh, I'm pretty happy with what God has given me. is enough to handle for me. I, in other words, I just want to be a fool with a hammer. I don't want to dream about the life that I could have. I want to be faithful in the life in which I do have. I just want to swing the hammer God gave me to swing. Do the job that he has. Pastor his people. Preach his word. Love my wife. Raise my children. And obey God. And I think that's what Noah shows us. Nothing spectacular. Not, not about building this massive life. Just following God. You know this world isn't, isn't going to last forever. Uh, what if I told you that the company you work for is, is going to go bankrupt? It's going under. And would that change the way, you, the way you work, the way you consider work? Or what if I told you the, the investment that you put all your money into, your retirement, uh, is going to lose all its value? Would, would, that, would that change you? What if I told you that this world that you live upon, one day shall, according to Scripture, be destroyed by fire. And we will live upon another. I wonder if that ought to change us. I wonder if that ought to give us a new perspective as to what we live for. And Noah had this perspective. And so we see he placed his faith in God, trust him, and we see that he accessed that mercy of God by his faith. Well, as we end our time this morning, look in chapter 7 and verse 1. A passage, God willing, we'll consider next week. The Scripture says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, And all your household. And so here they are. After 120 years of building this boat, God says it's time. And he looks at his boys and says, okay, boys, go get your wives. It's time to get on board. And he looks at his wife and grabs her hand and walks upon this ship that he just spent decades building. Scripture will tell us that Noah didn't close the door. That God would. I wonder if he looked back upon that doorway as he got upon that ark and saw his city and his neighbors and saw his cousins and his relatives, you know, the, the kids that grew up that his kids played soccer with or baseball and all the people who lived around him. No one would come with him. They, I trust, laughed at him. He, I think, perhaps invited them, as I said. I think he said, judgment is coming once you come aboard, and, and no one came. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I think you should understand that your eternal destiny is in many ways chosen by you. That if you end up in heaven, it's because God has given you faith to choose him, to trust in him. But if you do not, if you end up in hell, it's because you have chosen to rebel against God and to sin against the one who makes you and sustains you and keeps you alive even this day. And I understand that it's been a long time since God said he would judge the world. It's been some 2,000 years since God last spoke to us saying judgment is coming. And therefore we conclude that judgment's not coming. Hell is not approaching. Jesus is not returning. It's all a big joke. I simply would just like to warn you this morning, based upon the authority of Scripture, that you are mistaking God's patience for indifference. He's not indifferent at sin. He's patient with it in order that you and I may have an opportunity to repent and receive the mercy in which God would provide for us. And He has given us mercy because in some sense you and I have boarded that ark, haven't we? Is that picture of that ark not a picture of Christ? That all who are in Christ shall be safely brought through the wrath of God, but all who are outside of Christ shall be washed away by God's holy wrath. And you and I, because we are in Christ Christians, shall never be washed away by the wrath of God. Instead, our sin shall be washed away by the blood of Christ. That He has caused a flood of His blood to cover all of our unrighteousness and iniquity and wash it away so that you and I shall be spared from God's wrath forever and ever. And it's to remember that sacrifice that we now come to the Lord's Supper. That we come before this remembrance meal recognizing that it's because of what this meal signifies that you and I shall never face a holy God without mercy and grace. And so it's my hope as you hold these elements into your, in your hand, Christian, that your soul would feast. This will be a soul feast for you upon the mercy of God. That you would feast upon what it is that He has saved you from that your sin would bring his wrath and he would wash it away through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For Christ has died as your substitute and has risen from the grave and we come now to celebrate that meal. And so I'll have the deacons now come forward as we prepare to give out this supper meal.